0: Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is David Whitehouse, author of the new book about a son, the non-fiction account of a violent murder that took place in Nuneaton in 2015 and its traumatic aftermath. The book is an extremely powerful and moving account of grief and love. I really love it. But I want to let Dave explain more about the detail, how he came to write the book, and the lessons he's learned along the way about mental health, the power of sharing, the art of listening, and so much more. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation with a brilliant writer about his extraordinary book. Dave, welcome to The Reset. Thank you for having me. Hello. Dave, um, congratulations on writing such an extraordinary book. Um, First of all, can you tell us a bit about how this project came about, because it's your first non-fiction book, isn't it? You, all your other books have been novels.
1: That's, that's right, yeah. The, the, the story goes that in um, on the night of Halloween 2015, uh, a 20-year-old man named Morgan Hare was walking close to Nuneaton Town Centre with um, a group of five friends when they were viciously attacked by three strangers. And um, Morgan was beaten and he was stabbed in the heart and lungs. And uh, a few hours later, he died in hospital. And over the next few days his 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 dad kind of in the midst of this unimaginable grief and shock did something extraordinary which was to begin to keep a a diary um which he was he was he was told actually by a, a police appointed kind of counselor that writing things down might help him get through this terrible thing he was about to go through but he started writing a diary which over the next weeks and months and then years became a record not just of um like his family's grief and what happened to them, but, and of the trial of his son's killers, who all went to prison. But, but then this kind of extraordinary fight to get the truth from the police, which was that the police were culpable for Morgan's murder. Um, and then when that kind of quest for the truth was done, he, for no reason other than that um, I'm from the same town, I'm from Nuneaton, I didn't know Morgan, I'd never met Colin, um, I'd heard about the murder when it happened just on, you know, old mates that still live there, my family sending me it because it was a shocking thing that mm. sent ripples through the town. But that diary found its way to me because I'd written a few books before and I was from the town and he just wanted my opinion on it, I guess. And that that was at the start of lockdown. That was March or April, 2020. And now we're here.
0: So, how, so that how did you feel when that was sent to
1: you? It was. It's. It's so difficult to describe the document because I've never read like his diary because I've never read anything like it. It's so open, such a raw kind of. It was like looking into a kind of well of the saddest kind of truth. Colin had kind of chronicled not just how he was feeling on any given day, which invariably was shit and sad, mm. but um, the kind of the small details that you never read about grief. I think I remember the thing that struck me the most was a. Was a week or two after Morgan's murder, Colin and his wife Sue are trying to sit and watch television, um, you know, just to try and chill out a little bit and, you know, distract themselves, I guess. And every channel they go on, they can't find anything that isn't Midsummer Murders or Murder She Wrote or, you know, a reminder or a little trigger would just send them back to this dark place that they couldn't really get out of anyway. So it was, it was, so reading it. I mean, I didn't feel qualified to give him any opinion on it. I didn't feel qualified to give him advice. I'm a father of sons, but I, you know, how do you tell a grieving man what to do with his diary about the murder of his son? I just didn't know what to do with it. So I, to my shame and embarrassment, I basically put it away, put it on a file on my desktop, promising myself I'd think about it and try and get back to him. But I just didn't know what to say. I don't think people know how to have these conversations about grief, in any circumstances necessarily, but especially in sudden and tragic ones like this. So I put it away and I sat on it and didn't get back to it. Got distracted by, you know, family life and then a global pandemic. And then uh, and then one day, four months later, Colin, Colin got in touch with me and said, you know, have you read it? And I read it again and phoned him and we just had the most incredible kind of a conversation. I think I'll always remember just this incredible open conversation about Morgan, about what happened to them and about what, you know, about ways in which he might get his story told, which is all that, all that Colin really wants, I guess.
0: Mm. And at what point did you think that you, you'd help him actually do that beyond just advice?
1: It was a result of those, It was. I don't know anything about self-publishing, I don't know anything about sticking stuff on the internet, or, you know, don't know anything about b- books, really. <laughs> but, um, or or even writing them, you might say, but it it, it, it it was just through those conversations, the more I spoke to him, the more, he, it was as if, I didn't know Colin before any of this, but Colin was, Colin's a, a truck driver from Nuneaton, not to disparage truck drivers or people from Nuneaton, or either, but he'd never written anything longer than a shopping list before or an email before and suddenly he was writing down not just writing down but sharing these you know deepest darkest innermost feelings um, about these things that had happened to them and it was almost as though what happened to Morgan and, and then Colin and his family in the subsequent years had opened him up it was it was it was it was a act of an act of kind of radical honesty what he wrote down and then so when I you know I said to him look Will you give me a a few days or a week to, you know, dick about with some ideas about how this might turn into, you know, how we might tell this story? Because it is an amazing story, and I think it's an important one. Um, you know, how do we get Morgan's story told? And and Colin did something incredible, which was to give me complete kind of creative license to, you know, have a go at that. Which is which is mad, really, a mad act of faith. Because I've written, if you're reading the book, you know, I've written. It's so intimate. I've written about not only his grief and his loss, but about his wife and his marriage and his, his, uh, his other two sons and, you know, secrets and, you know, things that he, things that he hadn't even told his wife are in this book. So it's, it was, a, it was a, yeah, a radical act of trust on his part, I guess.
0: Did you, was, was it a combination of what he had written, his diary plus conversations with him? That, that you piece it together from?
1: Yeah, the, the, the facts and the, the facts of what happened are obviously from his diary. So, you know, it's by its nature, it's chronological. So this is what happened on every given day. Mm. And on most of those days, he'd write how he felt, which invariably was a kind of, was a variation on very shit. Mm. Um, he, you know, there were kind of odd feelings and little bits like he'd write down dreams that he had. It was very bitty, very kind of angry. A lot of it was unreadable. A lot of it was unusable. Um... A lot of it, you know, it's maddening. Obviously, extremely sad, mm. um, but all, you know, all the way through, extraordinary. So the book was kind of taking elements of that, and then, and then loads. We just had so many conversations about everything. Um, that often that's where the best stuff came from. Just kind of chats with him, or we'd have late night text <laughs> marathons. Yeah. Um, where he you know and every time he spoke to him he just revealed something else you think Christ that's an incredible thing that people don't know about grief or Mm. or loss or you know what it's like to go through something that like they've been through. So just jotting them down and then you know because of the pandemic we couldn't meet straight away but when we did meet I mean the first time we met I think it was the first time we met I went to his house and then we went to we together we walked Morgan's last steps and we stood on the spot where Morgan died where he was stabbed and then where he died. And that's a powerful thing to do that with the father of, yeah, you know, with his dad. um, And all of, all of this ended up going into the book as well as it being, you know, as well as my understandings about the town, having been raised there and, you know, being a young man there, you know, I was older oh no, I was younger than Morgan when I left, but you know, we drank in the same, we drank underage in the same pubs. I used to walk past the spot where he was murdered every day on on um, my way to college. So it. Yeah. You know, I knew the town and the people and what violence looks like there. Um, you know, particularly, you know, I know what young men get up to there. Mm. Um, though I'd never had an experience like Morgan ultimately did. But it, all of these things kind of coalesce to to make the book what it is, I suppose. As a way of telling, you know, hopefully a unique way of telling an important story.
0: Obviously, Colin had found, when, once he'd started... to to write this down he he must have you know found out quickly that this was helpful that's why he carried on doing it but you know like you touched upon talking to people who've been through this kind of grief or or any kind of grief for for many of us for many blokes in particular it often just feels awkward and I'm embarrassed to admit that but that's how I often feel around people who've gone through this sort of trauma or you know I, I actually you know I've never met somebody who's been through this kind of trauma but but, you know, death generally you just think, oh, God, I, I don't know what to say. I, my overriding emotion is awkward. So how did you start to feel comfortable enough to have these conversations with someone who who had been a stranger until five minutes beforehand? How, how did you start to
1: open up? In the very beginning, I just didn't know how to have the conversations. I've only ever met two people who've lost children. Colin's one of them. And on both of them, you could see... Um, you know, only knowingly met two people that have lost children, and on both of them, you could, you know, you could see the grief. It was almost a part of their physicality. It was so kind of deep and powerful. Um, and he, I, I didn't know how to converse with him about it. in the In the in the beginnings, I was just kind of. It helped for me to just not say anything. Mm. You know, luckily he was. He, he he wanted to kind of expunge himself of all this stuff because he wanted people to know Morgan's story, and he was this. this he was overwhelmingly honest and about his feelings and his innermost thoughts and his and his grief that it was just kind of you just let him sit and do it and he talked he talked a lot as well a lot of what helped me come to terms with how to talk to him about it was him telling me how no one knows how to talk to him about it no one knows how to you, you know so many people friends family members of his haven't even been able to ask him exactly what happened to morgan that night just because people don't know how to Have those conversations. People often, in the face of grief, resort to um cliche, I guess, in the same way that you would if you were trying to chat someone up at a bar. You know, do you come here often? And the grief has its own cliches, like, you know, I'm sure he's looking down on you, or take every day at a time, and all this stuff that Colin you know, I won't speak for him, but I don't think found particularly helpful. So for me, the turning point was understanding that what Colin wanted more than anything was to talk about it. I think we assume that when people are grieving, oh, they don't want to chat about this. It's too sad, mm-hmm. you know. And in some cases, I'm sure that's correct. And it, you know, it is sad. But Colin wanted to talk about it. He wanted everyone to know the ins and outs and the details of what happened and how he feels. It's important to him, and, it, and that, that ultimately, I think, you know, helps.
0: And why do you think that is? Is it because you know things like this happen, and and society's got used to seeing these things as sort of two dimensional headlines, and not fully understanding the the human impact of of this sort of incident?
1: Yeah, we're we're overexposed to it, and the, the kind of human cost. I think you say this about a lot of things, but the human cost of knife crime is. He, you know, has become a kind of background noise. We don't hear about half, the, half of the people, half of the young men and women that are murdered with knives on the streets because we're so used to hearing about it that, you know, it drops further and further down the news agenda. And the turning point of the book and also of Colin's story is that when he, there was a trial of his son's killers, when he came out of the courtroom on the steps, he had a speech written in his pocket because, you know, everything you know about courtroom, everything you know about these things is learned from, television drama so he expected yeah. a wall of you know photographers and satellite vans and microphones yeah. up in his up in his grill and and all that stuff But there just wasn't anyone there there wasn't a single journalist there was no one to listen to or to listen to his story or to tell Morgan's story too it's you know it was just another it was just another murder which no murder should be yeah um so you know that was it Colin was expected to go home and I think sit down and You know, maybe never really talk about it again. Certainly not publicly. It was a. It felt like, you know, who cares? Like a swept under the carpet statistic, really. Just another, yeah, another knife crime statistic. Another kind of, you know, not even a, you know, a tiny bit of the BBC News website for twelve hours, and that's it, probably. Um, and that's what drove him, I think, to, you know, that's probably the point at which, or it's certainly the point at which he you know, started to suspect that there was more to the reasons behind Morgan's murder than first let on, but also the point at which he realised his diary was not just a kind of therapeutic tool, um, Mm. you know, to write down his thoughts and feelings and, you know, come to terms with them, but also, which he did find useful, but also could become an important part of telling Morgan's story.
0: Yeah, I think you referred to it as like an act of of radical honesty. Mm. I mean, what have have you learned about the power of sharing? Because we hear this a lot, you know, oh, it's so important to share. If you can share, it really helps. But very often, I mean, even that has become like a bit of a platitude, I suppose, because people don't know actually why or how that works. But, you know, you've seen how, how that process works, with Colin, how's it affected him and you?
1: In Colin, um, again, I won't speak for him, but I've, I've, I've certainly seen the change in him. He's kind of half joked that um, there's a degree to which I became his therapist. I should point out I'm not a qualified therapist, <laughs> quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, he, he, you know, it's he, certainly helped. If you ask Colin how his life is, he'll say it's shit because his son was murdered. Mm. But there are, there are degrees of shit and, you know, there are certainly good days and bad days, but it seems to me, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done, which is completely open up and, and about his grief and about his son in an extraordinary and unique way, that, you know, there's absolutely no question that it's helped. You know, there, it does feel... I don't think you ever move on fully from something like this, but I think if you ask Colin... How he is now, having with the book about to be published and the you know story being told, he'd certainly say he's moved forward. um And and you know,
0: you say oh, I'm I'm not a qualified therapist, but that's an, another interesting thing because yeah, there are people who are trained to know what sort of stuff might help or to ask insightful questions that that might you know help help both parties understand. But of course, you know it's it, it doesn't have to be that person. Sharing was just someone who is prepared to just listen and absorb what you're saying and understand. Yes, yeah, it's exactly. It's a, that. It is a powerful thing too, right?
1: Sharing is not a you know it doesn't have to be a two way street. Yeah, I mean, he, was, he wasn't expecting me to have any answers or you know even ask the right questions. I don't think he he needed to get it off his chest. There's a it's. Um, I was reading about something the other day called dignity therapy, which is for people who are, it's, you know, slightly, slight tangent, but people that are people that are dying people in palliative care in hospices and stuff. Um, there are therapists who would just go and sit down and listen to them, tell their life story. Um, you know, no matter how interesting or boring it is because people just don't want certain things to be forgotten. And yeah. it helps, it helps just to, to speak about them. Mm-hmm. Um it, you know going back to Colin in his case it it helped him to get out of grief and not get out of grief but helped him to manage it or change it in some way I suppose um but my my job was was simply to listen and that you know it not like I'm blowing my own trump here being a decade but you know it it helped I think it helped well
0: I don't think you are at all and I'm actually really interested about how you do that because so many of us and I, I do this i even do it on this podcast people will tell you things right and they'll tell you quite intimate things when people want to share it's quite touching when someone wants to share with you yeah but I think that a lot of us can feel like a responsibility when they're sharing to either offer an answer a solution or share something back to, to prove that you can relate which, you know, obviously you just yeah. can't in lots of instances, certainly the one that you were discussing with Colin, but lots of different things. We can't accept, oh, I'm glad you shared this with me because I went through something similar. And it, it's difficult. It's difficult to listen.
1: It's a weird human instinct to, that to, um, to want to... It's basically, I think it's built out of awkwardness. Someone's yeah. telling you about, particularly about grief or immense sadness. Um, you feel so... You naturally feel so awkward being British doesn't help but Mm. um you naturally feel so awkward I don't think being a man helps either that you 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 can find yourself kind of getting into accidentally getting into a game of kind of grief top trumps about (laughs) you know who's got this oh yeah I've got a really sad story too I know someone that died yeah I was I met someone who was murdered once it's all natural human reaction I think to to hearing this stuff or someone being, it's it's more to someone being so open with you, isn't it? Um, I think it, I I tell you what I feel sometimes is that
0: like, if someone tells me something and it's like, you can tell they've gone out on a bit of a limb to tell you, right. hmm. You kind of think this must feel, uh, um, this might, this, this must feel like something of a gamble because they might think that I might judge them or feel embarrassed and I need to very quickly demonstrate to them that I am not judging. I am not embarrassed and I'm happy they told me. <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? You think I better withdraw a sting from this because if not, they might regret telling me and I don't want them to feel any worse than they already do. Yeah. You know, I I don't know if you've ever, if you, if you've had that, I suppose what I'm saying is God, did, was there techniques that you had to, that you sort of learn over time during these conversations about, You know how to keep your mouth shut when every part of you wanted to sort of say something just to break the tension.
1: There's still there's still point. You know, we still talk all the time. There's still points at which you sit on your hands because it is hard to hear and it is awkward. Even though you know, I know Colin's story inside out. Mm. It was his openness and honesty was almost overwhelming. So it kind of it kind of kicked that awkwardness out of me a little bit, and that's Mm. what that's what probably you know you'd hope to. Or I'd hope to if I was in another of these situations, or one of my mates came to me with a, you know, wanting to tell me something sad about themselves, that I'd be able to do that to myself. But it's not, it's, you know, it's not that easy, which is why people pay loads of money to go and talk to strangers with um, sofas about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, it,
1: because, it, particularly with someone you know, um, it, it's just, it's so weirdly not that easy to just shut up, just listen. Mm but it is remembering that you're not supposed to have necessarily have advice. You're not supposed to necessarily know what to do. Someone wants to tell you something and that's enough. That will help. Right. So it's, it's as important as it is to get shit off your chest and be open and honest with this. It's as, as important to just sit and listen to it. Soak it up, be a part of the furniture. If they just want a face to talk to you sometimes.
0: So mate, you effectively immersed yourself completely in another man's grief and trauma. And to to a lesser extent, that of other people as well, you know, um, uh, Morgan's mother and and his friends and so forth. How did that affect you? I mean, it's almost like, I was thinking, it's almost like when you read about actors doing the the method, you know, um, approach to acting, because you had to literally almost, take on his persona how how does that affect you mentally and emotionally
1: there is it's hard you know there are i'll caveat this with there are there's a spectrum of hardness here you know what colin's been through is hard of course yeah comparatively speaking writing a book about colin isn't hard but at the same time writing a book about colin is hard you know Mm -hmm. you certainly i certainly go and hug my sons a little bit tighter that night you know, after after a day of doing that. Um, it's, there, there is an argument as well that it's, it might take a little while to come to terms with because I've got a friend who, you know, it might be in the post, I've got a friend who wrote a book um, about a, about something terrible which he was very close to and I know has suffered, um, He suffered, you know, significant um effects from it significant psychological effects he's had a hard time dealing with what he was close to and what he immersed himself in so you know i'm wary of the fact that it does exist but at the same time as well as immersing myself in colin's sadness you know i also found something very unexpected which was a very unique friendship Mm. you know what i mean there's something very intimate Mm. there that um and good and you know, I think you know I'll probably be mates with Colin for the rest of my life. I hope I am that that has hopefully overrides any any you know difficulty I have dealing with it. I still find it hard to talk about because I feel uh, though I feel um, you know an immense responsibility to him, immense responsibility to Morgan, even though we never met to, to tell the story well and, and truthfully. but you know, as for lasting psychological effects, you know, the jury's out.
0: I think. <laughs> Do you think that it's um helped you though, in terms of like? Obviously, we've talked about. You know, it, 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 you've learned a lot about how to listen and the power of that. Do you think it might have made you a bit more resilient and, and just understanding about the issues that we all just try to avoid ever thinking about?
1: I know. Like, I know. Like
0: grief and trauma.
1: I know it has weirdly because I I've. Um, a friend's relative who lost a son in tragic, different but tragic circumstances, who, um, this was a um, a little while before I met Morgan, and I remember, she's a woman who lost her son, and I remember seeing her and just not knowing what to say or do a few months after the incident, you know, it was an accident mm-hmm. this time, but, and just being like, oh, fucking, wanting to climb out the window and, you know, run away from it rather than kind yeah. of confront it. Though I've spoke to this woman many times, you know, been out and had fun and all this stuff, just didn't know what to say to her. And then um, I saw her a few weeks ago and she asked me to go for a walk with her. We went for a walk for two hours and I just listened. And she, she hasn't read this book, though she has heard about it, but I went and listened and she hadn't opened up to anyone really about, not even therapists or anything like that, about what happened to her son. And she told me about it non-stop for two hours, wow. and I didn't. I didn't feel awkward. It actually felt, you know, it felt good. It felt nice to be able to, you know, if it's helping her, then it's a. It felt like, like something I can do without awkwardness anymore. Mm.
0: Um, what was it like when you sort of delivered the final draft of this book to Colin, or were you delivering pages as you went along? I don't know.
1: No, he left me. It was terrible. That was the single most, the single hardest moment in the process. Was that he he gave me complete creative license to do whatever I wanted. So essentially, obviously, I was in conversation with him all the time, getting bits and interviewing him. And if I needed to know something, I'd call him up or text him, whatever. So that the you know there was back and forth a lot over the year that it took me to write the first draft. But he didn't read any of it. He didn't see any of it. So suddenly, I had at the end of that year, I've got eighty thousand words which I had printed out. Um. You know, A4 before before it even showed my editor. I think no, just after I showed my editor once and then had it printed out, slapped the kind of draft of the front cover on it, and I took it to his house. Mm. Um, never been so scared in my entire life because, like I said, I've written about his marriage, I've written about his wife, mm. these intimate secrets. It felt genuinely like I was adding in my bag of fucking grenade or something that I was carrying into his living room. This is going to blow you apart emotionally. It's an incredibly sad book. Aside from. You know, the story of what happened to them, to have that retold to you, um, you know, I can't imagine what that's like. It took me six mm. hours to get this manuscript out of my bag. My hands were shaking. I don't think I've ever been, I've never been as nervous in my professional life. Mm. I wasn't that, I wasn't that nervous on the day I got married or any of that. It's just like I couldn't, you know, I could barely bring myself to do it. I genuinely thought about just leaving and not giving it to him at one point <laughs> because, oh my God. But, um, and then I didn't sleep that was on a friday i didn't sleep that whole weekend and um he called me on the monday and just said it's it's good and that was you know that's all you that's all i really needed that was you know that that was it for me and he, so he was he was happy and i mean he was happy and, and you know i think in the in you know on that monday obviously the you know when he said it's good i think that he didn't know what else to say but since then we've had so many conversations about it. And, you know, it's quite an honor that he said to me, he knows things about himself and about, you know, what he's been through that he didn't know before he read the book about himself. Mm. Um, and he's, you know, and he's learned things and it has, you know, it has helped to, you know, certainly wouldn't not to end his grief, but to carry him forward in it, I guess mm. Maybe one, one way of putting it. It's, it's a, you know, that's enough for me if he's happy with it and it tells Morgan's story, that's, that's fine. And
0: have you learned anything encouraging about, you know, rec- recovery from trauma and grief, you know, some sort of hope?
1: There is hope there. Cause you, there is hope there. I can, you know, it's a, it's a grief, particularly traumatic grief like that is the loss of all hope, isn't it? And the, and the, inability i guess to see a future or a new way forward and it i've learned that you know the greatest things the the best ways to help yourself through it i to talk about it clearly you know i can say that you know having spoken to colin non-stop for two years but time is the you know i'm i'm doing i'm now reverting to the grief cliches but they exist for a reason They so help us talk about it but you know time is a healer um it, You know, there is a. If you'd have asked Colin in the days and weeks after Morgan's murder, whether the you know what was going to happen, would he ever feel okay again? Uh, I'm pretty sure he'd have said no. But, you know, I think and know and hope that that's different now. Some years on.
0: Just lastly, mate, feel free to just say, no, this question's not for me in case it, it's crass or you don't feel qualified. But, you know, you did talk earlier about um, Nanny and growing up as a young man in Nanny, and, you know, a violent working class town, or it could be violent, you know, and, and you paint a portrait of the sort of lives of, of Morgan's killers hmm. in this book, you know, is there anything you've learned about violence and, and young men um, and and you know why we seem to have such a big problem with that
1: um i don't know why we have such a big problem with that it does exist in the neaton it was there i left in 1999 but it was there then in the kind of years when i you know my formative years of going out probably 96 to 99 in the neaton mm. it would be you know we'd go out every wednesday friday and saturday and uh, we, it would be rare that I didn't see a young man getting his head kicked in. You know, on a couple of occasions I was one of them.
0: Mm.
1: Um, it was a, it was a kind of toughness or hardness amongst young men in towns like that. Not just in mm. was and is a kind of currency. You know, in a mm. in a place where there's very little money and nothing else. Um, you, you know. was a belief I think among some that you needed to be hard and you need not only that you needed to be able to show that you were willing to (laughs) demonstrate Mm. that um Mm. on other people who didn't deserve it I've learned that things like what happened to Morgan you know they don't it doesn't happen in a in isolation it's a result of um especially Morgan's case because uh, the young man that killed him he was 21 you know shouldn't have been free should have been in, should have been in prison for previous offenses mm. um i've learned that you know when violence like this happens is often the result of the direct result of underfunded institutions and underfunded police force and that morgan is a symptom of you know austerity um, in, a, in a lot of ways a, a properly funded police force um, where the staff were properly trained and had supervisors in place that were doing their jobs which they weren't um, in the weeks and months before morgan morgan was murdered this kind of stuff would happen less you know when when austerity happens and police budgets are cut knife crime goes up it's not a you know it's not a mystery um and that's how young men find themselves in you know a part of why you know i'm not taking the blame away from Morgan's killers or anyone who goes out on the street with a knife in their hand, but often that's how these things come about. So they are preventable. Mm.
0: Well, Dave, um, I'm delighted that the book has gone down so well, particularly with Colin um, and and that it's helped him so much. But also, you know, listen, I've told you this before. I think this is an amazing book, um, truly amazing and um, it, it sort of took me to places sort of emotionally that I don't think many books have taken me before. It takes you like, deep into like a mindset that you can't possibly fathom. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope that it gets all, all the plaudits and success it deserves. Do you, you know, you like I said at the start. You 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 were a novelist by trade until this book came along. And it, it must have been a bit of a surprise for you because obviously, as you explained, it came out of the blue. Yeah. Um, will you do you think you'll be writing anything like this ever again? Do you think you'll be writing nonfiction again? Or
1: yeah, I'd love to stay in the realm of, of you know telling other people's stories. There's an argument that I was a bit of a shit novelist, so that kind of helps me make my that decision. <laughs> <laughs> but um but um, you know I've certainly I was never looking for this it just came along but the experience of getting to know Colin and you know telling an important story mm. in a in a different way is what I've tried to do is um yeah, yeah I'd love to be I'd love to I'd love to get into something again. But you can't you know these things just come about often they don't you can't go looking for a story like this. Mm. It's, it's it was a um you know it's unbelievable that I was just, you know, this happened because I'm from the same town, really. Yeah. It it just it just appeared. It's, it's kind of, you know, it'd be better. It'd be better if this book didn't exist or didn't have a reason to exist. And that yeah, Morgan was out there right now. But you know that you know I consider it a tremendous piece of fortune on my part to have met Colin and been had the chance to tell his story.
0: I don't suppose you're the sort of person who believes in fate. I don't know if Colin does, but it does feel that, that way now that you two cross paths in a fairly random way.
1: Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I do believe in fate, but or serendipity, but it feels like both of those things, doesn't it? So mm. maybe I've got to, need to readdress my entire belief yeah. system. Oh, you take another look at it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it is- turns out I've got it wrong. <laughs>
0: Thanks ever so much for joining me and and telling us about this brilliant book. Thanks for the book and all the best of it, mate. Thanks for having me. There you go. David Whitehouse on his incredible book about a son. Months after reading it, it's a book that still lives with me. Buy it, buy it, buy it is my advice. And when you're done doing that, subscribe to the Reset newsletter, if you don't already, at samdelaney.substack.com. You get this pod ad-free a day early and my writings on mental health, sobriety and whatnot delivered to your inbox once a week and on. Until next time, be lucky and
1: don't let the dickheads get you down.